You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, I'm so excited. Today we start the Gospel of John. We start a one-year study looking at the most important, the most significant, the most preeminent, the most influential, the most polarizing person in the history of the world, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we're going to open the Word of God to learn about the Son of God. And before we do, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. This is my Bible. I've got a number of Bibles, but this is my Bible, meaning it's my most treasured earthly possession. When I was in High school, I met a really cute gal, sweet, awesome, wonderful gal. And I could say that because she's now my wife. And she bought me a Bible. I was not a Christian, didn't have much interest in Christianity. She bought me a Bible. Later, I bought her a ring. If you're a single guy, here's just a little tip. She buys you a Bible, you buy her a ring. 30 years later, I could tell you, that's a really good deal and you should make that deal. So Grace gave me this Bible as my Bible. Now, I'll be honest and say, I didn't really read it. Some of you have got a Bible like that. It's somewhere, but you haven't really picked it up in a while. And I didn't really read it. I kind of believed in God. I went to church a little bit as a kid. I kind of stopped going and lost interest. And then I went off to college. And in college, it seemed like almost every single class was literally just pounding on this book. Philosophy, sociology, history, all of these issues are just pounding away at God's word, criticizing Christianity and biblical teaching. And I thought for myself at the State University, I should figure out what I believe about this book. I should read it for myself. So I went back to my dorm room and I started reading this Bible that Grace gave me. And I don't know exactly how long I'd been reading and God did something supernatural, extraordinary that has changed my life and destiny. Somewhere in the reading of the Bible, God flipped a switch in my soul. I cannot explain it. God did it. I love Jesus and I had a hunger to know the Bible. Never had either of those desires or inclinations previously. And so I start reading the Bible and and I'm enjoying it, which is completely new for me. So I decide I got to find a church. Now, the problem in finding a church, you don't know what to look for. Everybody, because you can end up in a cult. That was my big fear. Because you don't know you're in a cult to the last day. That's the problem with a cult. (laughs) You're like, I was going to church. What? White shoes, free Kool-Aid. This is, oh, no, this is not good. So I didn't know what I'm looking for. So I'm a little scared, apprehensive, and I go to a church and it was kind of like the Trinity Church, actually all ages and sweet people and really nice and everybody looked normal. And the guy got up and he said, now open your Bible. I was like, whoo, that's a good idea. And he just taught through the Bible. So I stuck there and learned the Bible. And I was in that church for a little bit and I thought, well, you know, I need to really learn my Bible. I'm going to go to the Christian bookstore and I'm going to see what books we need to read now that I'm a Christian. And so I go to the bookstore and I bought something called a systematic theology. It's a big, huge book. It's the kind of book, like if the end of the world comes, you could hide under it. I mean, it's that big. And so I got this big systematic theology and I went to my pastor and I said, "Uh, hey, pastor, is this a good book? I want to read this. I think I'm going to read this book. And he looked at me, he said, you want to read that book? I said, yeah. He pointed at the Bible, this Bible. He said, have you read that book? I said, well, I read parts of it. He said, have you read the whole book? I was like, people do that? That's a huge book. It's a huge book. He said, no, you, you need to read that whole book. And he took, he, took, he took my systematic theology. And I was thinking, I haven't read this whole book, but I'm pretty sure stealing's in there and that's wrong. I, this was a holdup with no gun. I just got robbed. He took, he, I said, okay, I'll go read my, so I you know, grab my Bible, I go home. I start reading it. And to be honest with you, parts of it confused me. I'm like, do what to the goat? I gotta get a goat? I mean, I had a lot to figure out. And uh And I keep reading and it was weeks or months, I don't know. I read the whole Bible. So I go back to my pastor. I said, I did it. I read the whole Bible. I read the whole thing. He's like, really? I said, yeah. I said, can I have my book back? He said, no. I said, well, what now? He said, pick a book of the Bible, preferably a short one, study it, memorize it until you've got it in your heart and you can explain it from your heart. So I picked First John, the same author that we're gonna study today and for the remainder of the year. And I did that for a while. And I went back to him, I said, I did it. I studied a whole book of the Bible for a long time, memorized sections. I think it's in my heart. I can explain it. I've been explaining it to my roommate. He's officially annoyed because that's all I talk about. 
And uh, I said, so can I have my book back? He said, no. I said, well, when do I get my book back? He said, here's what you need to do. Pick another book and study it like that. I said, how long do I have to do this for? He said, do it until you die. So that's what I've been doing. That was the best advice anybody ever gave me. Now, I'm not against theology. I'm not against big books. I've written a theology book. All of that is fine. But I believe that most people don't get enough time in this book. I believe that there are a lot of people even here in the valley, they're moral, they're spiritual, they're political, but they're not biblical. That they spend a lot of time looking at ideology and philosophy and history, but they don't open God's word to meet with God to receive a word from God. And so what I have been doing by God's grace for more than 20 years as a senior pastor is studying books of the Bible and then teaching them. I've preached and taught through a couple dozen books of the Bible, and this has absolutely changed my whole life. It's the foundation of our marriage. It is the foundation of our parenting. It is the foundation of our life and our ministry. Everything is based on the truth of God's word and God's word brings life. God's word brings joy. God's word brings God's presence and peace and provision. And I just love you so much and I love God so much and I love God's word so much that I'm so excited that I get to preach all year through the whole gospel of John. I'm so excited and I want you to be excited too, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna open John's gospel. This is amazing. God wrote a book. Look, you have a copy. Maybe a fake copy on your phone. Either way, same book, perfectly good. And we're gonna spend the majority of a year looking at John's gospel. Two things I'm praying for you. Number one, that you will grow in confidence to study, know, and learn God's word. Some of you have been in church a long time. You're like, yeah, the preacher puts verses together. I don't know how to do that. I want you to love studying God's word for yourself. He'll meet with you every single time. Number two, as we study, John, you're gonna learn things about Jesus that you would otherwise never know. There's four gospels. They're basically biographies about Jesus. I'm so excited, I can't even breathe and I'm sweating like Mike Tyson is spelling me. This is such a great day. Um, Okay, so there are four gospels. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 60% of their content material is similar. John 90 plus percent of John is unique. Meaning these are things you wouldn't know about Jesus if John didn't tell us. I believe the other gospels were written first. He writes last and he fills in anything that was not previously recorded. Before we jump in, let me quote for you two of the most towering figures in the history of the world about John. The first is a man named Augustine. He says, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. What he's saying is this, if you're a non-Christian, brand new Christian, young person, you're not gonna drown. If you are a mature Christian, a studied Christian, you're still gonna grow. John is that amazing. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer and one of the greatest influences on the history of the world says this, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John were to escape him, Christianity would be saved. What, what, what Luther is saying is this, if we lost the whole Bible, but we had Romans and John, we'd make it. According to Luther, these are the two most important books in the entire Bible. And we're gonna open one right now. And you need to know what a great gift and honor this is. People have died to give us God's word. People have died to translate for us God's word. And we just get to open God's word, amen? So let's start. Jesus is our eternal God. John chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, what does that sound like? Genesis 1.1, sounds like the first line in the Bible. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he, that is Jesus, was in the beginning with God. If you were to write a book or a letter, you'd probably start by introducing yourself. Many of the authors of the New Testament do. Hello, my name is so-and-so, I love you, I've been praying for you. In fact, here's a prayer for you. Now let's get to work. John, right to work. Here's why. At this point, he is the highest spiritual authority on earth. He has been to the funeral of all the other disciples. He is an elderly man who is the last remaining eyewitness disciple of Jesus. His spiritual authority is the highest on planet earth. His authority is higher than the Pope and Billy Graham combined today. 
He's one of those guys, he doesn't need an introduction. He just gets right to work. And some of you are old guys, and you know, you don't want to waste time, you want to get right to work. John's like that. And he starts right out of the chute, not telling us about himself, but telling us about Jesus. He starts by telling us that Jesus is our eternal God. There's going to be seven things that he will in fact teach us about Jesus that I'm excited to share with you today. That being said, he introduces us to his best friend, Lord, Savior, God, and King, Jesus Christ. When you and I fill out a job application, college application, we fill out a social media profile, there is certain standard information that we need to give. First is, what's your name? Well, we're talking about Jesus Christ. The next thing that is often asked is, what's your birthday? What's Jesus' birthday? In the beginning. That's a lot of candles. What is that? That's, that's complicated. He's walking on the earth. He looks like he's about 30-something years of age. How old is he? He's eternal. That's what he's saying. That Jesus' birthday actually doesn't exist because he didn't have a beginning. Before the beginning and in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What it's saying is, in the beginning, there was a moment that everything got made. Pre-existing that moment was the maker, not the made, the creator, not the created, the one who is eternal, not the one who is bound by time, and he is Jesus. This is absolutely mind-bending. This is the guy that Jesus hung out with for three years. Jesus ate meals with this guy. Jesus was friends with this guy. And this guy is saying, my best friend Jesus was there at creation as the eternal God who made everyone and everything. He is without beginning or end. He is over all. All comes from him. All is under his jurisdiction. All will stand and give an account before him because your beginnings determine your endings. And that's where John is going. This is a staggering, earth-shattering, mind-boggling claim about Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. His birthday is before the beginning. Let me say two things. Number one, Jesus is all about beginnings. And he's about new beginnings. I, I, I hope you receive that. I don't know what last year looked like, but now it's this year. I don't know what the past looks like, but I know who rules the future. Maybe, maybe you've had some troubles, some struggles, some trials. Here's the good news that we have a good God who's all about new beginnings. And what he's saying is this, the God who created everything in the beginning, he's coming to human history to give us a new beginning. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. You walk with Jesus, you get a new beginning. Amen? There's encouragement in that. There's hope in that. Secondly, I want you to think of God not as old. I'll never forget. I was late teens, early 20s, working as a bellhop at a Marriott hotel. And I read a book from a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He was an old British teacher. And there was one phrase, one line, one section that I spent the rest of the day just walking around carrying bags thinking about because I was stunned. And he said, and I am paraphrasing his basic concept, that we sin and we grow old and we break down and we get tired. And we tend to think of God as old. Many of us, when we think of God, we think of God as old, like an old man in the sky. And he said, God doesn't sin. God doesn't break down. God doesn't grow weary. God doesn't grow tired. Maybe we're old and God is young. God is exuberant. God is powerful. God is alive. God is hopeful. Sometimes we're not because we're the ones who are getting old. By being eternal, it doesn't mean that he's old. It means that he's always young. And I thought, what a tremendous concept that I worship a God of life. I worship a God of enthusiasm. I worship a God of power. I I worship a God who doesn't grow old. I worship a God who doesn't grow weary. I I worship a God who does not lack. And he's always there to help and to hope and to heal. He tells us that his name is Jesus Christ, that he is before the beginning. And then the next question you often fill out is, where do you live? Where, Where did Jesus live? With God. There's God the Father, God the Son. 
In eternity past, before time began, the Father and the Son lived together. His residence was with the Father. He is the eternal Son of God. Now this is an amazing claim. No one else makes this claim. That he is with God. That means that Jesus is God. He is eternal God. That he is with God the Father in eternity past. He was with him in the beginning. And then the question is often asked, well, what's your job? What's your vocation? What do you do for a living? This is holy ground. This is the word of God. And right away, John's going to tell us who Jesus is. Jesus is the most significant person in the history of the world. We measure time by him. Time magazine called him the man of the millennium, not the man of the year. This is not an overstatement. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Who is Jesus? What does it say? God. The word was with God and the word, that's Jesus, while walking on the earth was God. Jesus Christ is God. Some would say, Jesus never said he was God. That was myth, legend, fable, and folklore that was added by his followers later. No, it wasn't. Jesus openly, Jesus emphatically, Jesus publicly, Jesus unapologetically, Jesus clearly said, repeatedly said, he was God. That's why he was put to death. For claiming to be God. You need to know this. For those of you who are here, you're unbelievers, you're skeptics. Maybe you've been wounded or bruised or beaten or battered by the church. Here's what I want to focus on. Jesus. I want you to know that no other religion has a founder who claimed to be God. Only Jesus said he was God. And early Christians, starting here with our study of John, they echoed what Jesus said, that he was who? God. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. This is where we begin. Everything starts with Jesus. Your day, your week, your month, your year, your family, your finances, your business, your relationships, your life, your eternal life. It all starts with Jesus, bedrock, ground zero, the blocks that launched your life forward as you run the race set before you. It has to begin with your decision of who you believe and declare Jesus Christ to be. And the Bible says, and John echoes, God, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Amen? Oh, gosh. What a decaf crowd. Come on. Come on, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. That's what we believe because that's what's true. That's what Jesus says, that's what the word of God says. His name is Jesus Christ. His birthday is before the beginning. His residence is with God. His employment is God. His title is the word. Word, word, word. Sound like a rapper, right? It's... He's the word of, what does that mean? That's a title. His name is Jesus. His title is the word of God. In the original Greek, which this was written, I don't claim to be an expert, but I use the tools. It's logos. This is an interesting concept. The first Christians were Hebrew. They spoke Hebrew. And then Christianity spread to Greeks. By the time John is writing, the majority of Christians are Greek, not Jewish. That's why the original language of the New Testament was Greek, because that was the majority of the people. The Greeks tried to find God through philosophy. How many of you have tried to find God through philosophy? I have a minor in philosophy. I studied philosophy in college. I read the Greeks. I read the moderns. Was trying to figure out life through philosophy. That was the Greeks. If you were in college, tell me if you read any of these guys. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, 
Those were the Greeks trying to find God through philosophy. Predating all of them was a man named Heraclitus. You may have heard something that he taught. He said that we never step in the same river twice because it's always flowing and changing. That was Heraclitus. He was like the George Washington of Greek philosophy. He was the founding father. So much so that even after his death, his face appeared on coins and he was honored publicly. So Heraclides influenced Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the one thing that holds all things together, that gives everything life and meaning and value and purpose, the most important thing that is the key that unlocks the understanding for everything is the word, the logos. So somewhere in the confusion of Greek philosophy, there was this longing for the word. Hebrews, Jewish people who had the Old Testament, would have been very familiar with the word of God. It says in Genesis that God spoke and it was so, and God spoke and it was so, and God spoke and it was so. So all that exists doesn't come from pre-existing material, but it comes solely by the power of God's word. So the word of God is how God works. Let me just make this plain and clear. God works through his word. God works through his word. God speaks, creation comes into existence. God speaks and creation obeys. God speaks and there is life. God speaks and there is light. The first and only thing that doesn't obey God are people. Everything else obeys God's word. In Isaiah 55, one, God says this. He says, my word that proceeds from my mouth, it will not return to me void. It will come in power and accomplish everything I have sent it to do. God works through his word. God works through his word. God works through his word. We live in a world that has a lot of words. It doesn't have a lot of God's words. That's the problem. And if you want to see change or life or hope or help or healing in your life, in your relationships, in your spirituality, in your family, you need a word from God. You need a word from God. You need a word from God. Let me tell you this. This is the word of God. This is the only perfect thing on the earth today. And that ultimately we live in a day when there is a war against the word of God. And you need to know that here at the Trinity Church, we love you, but the most important thing that you need to know is when you disagree with the word of God, you are wrong. You are wrong. We are not to be God's editors. We are to be God's messengers. And what the word of God does, it reveals to us the character of God. It tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. I'll never forget, I was a brand new pastor. A guy was a brand new Christian. I bought him a Bible, nice study Bible. I said, here you go, buddy, start reading that. He started reading and he came up to me after church. He said, Pastor Mark, I'm reading the Bible. I said, how's that going? He said, it's not working. It's not working, Pastor Mark. I said, why is it not working? He said, the more I read, the worse I feel. Dude, it's working. It's working. (laughs) It's showing you who you are. And then it's showing you who Jesus is. And then it's showing you how he forgives and changes you. So you become more like him. Our culture is at war with this book. And the battle is ultimately this. Does God need to change or do we need to change? We do. We do. Because life, hope, help, healing comes from the word of God, that God works through his word. And Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God's working in human history. Jesus is God's entrance into human history. Jesus is God's power unleashed and at work in the world that God made. And so in quoting this concept from the Greeks and the Hebrews, what John is intimating is this, whatever culture, whatever philosophy, whatever spirituality, whatever theology, whatever ideology, whatever nationality, whatever history, everyone, everywhere, all needs to know Jesus, to meet Jesus, to love Jesus, to submit to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to trust Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, there is no revelation from God. There's no word from God. There's no salvation from God. That's how God works. When the Bible is open and Jesus is revealed, God speaks power into history and he transforms destiny. That's the first one. Number two, we got seven. Jesus, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know, I'm sweaty, I need a towel. My nose is running. Okay, okay. Jesus is our creator God. All things 
What things? All things. Just checking. All things were made through him. Who? Jesus. Jesus. Without him was not anything made that was made. What he's saying is this. Jesus made everybody. Jesus made everything. There's a big debate over this. Not for John. Not a big debate. And now I need to establish for you not just what to think, but how to think. The Bible has two categories. Creator, creation. The maker, that which is made. Okay? The question is, which category does Jesus go in? Other religions and spiritualities and ideologies will put Jesus in the category of created, not creator. A made being, not the maker of all beings. So if you drive down toward Gilbert, Mesa, you see one of the temples of the Mormon church. Love them, but they're wrong. And uh, they will tell you that Jesus is a man, a created being who became God, a God. If you stop by a Muslim mosque and you ask the imam, who's Jesus? The imam will tell you, Jesus is a created man who became a prophet. You stop by Jehovah's Witnesses. They will tell you if they come to your door, who is Jesus? They will say, he is a created being. He's an angel. If you drive up to Sedona, it's beautiful and the people are weird. (laughs) And God loves weird people. He loves me. I'm weird. But you walk into one of those stores, you know, who's Jesus? They'll say, He is a created being, a man who achieved a higher level of consciousness to where he became one with the divine force that lives in the world and works through all things. If you ask a Hindu, who is Jesus? They will say, he is a a man who through karma continually reincarnated, entering higher levels of enlightenment and he'll be, until he became a very enlightened spiritual man. All of them share in common one thing, created, not creator. Okay? John here, let me ask you, what category is he putting Jesus in? Creator or created? Creator. Creator. This is incredibly fundamentally important. What John is saying is, everyone... And everything comes from Jesus. Everyone and everything belongs to Jesus. Everyone and everything returns to Jesus. Everyone and everything gives an account to Jesus. You are not from nowhere, here for nothing, and going nowhere. You are here from him. You are here for him. You will return to him. You will give an account to him. You need to know that the personal God of the universe made you to be in relationship with him and you are not creator, you are created. You are not the maker, you were made. You only find your meaning in relationship to your maker. His name is Jesus. That's exactly what John is saying. Number three, Jesus is our polarizing God. How many of you have seen that Jesus is a bit controversial? How many of you thought, I'm gonna put a verse on my... Facebook wall, and then everybody will like it. They didn't. Okay, it's, what the, you know? Uh, Jesus is controversial. He's polarizing. John chapter one, verses four through 10. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. There's our hope. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is his cousin, John. There's about nine guys in the New Testament named John. John the Beloved is writing. He's talking about John the Baptizer here. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone that's coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. There it is again. Yet the world did not know him. Okay, let me, let me start with something that's a little bit complicated, but very important. We need to love the Lord our God with all our mind. 
To not be conformed to the pattern of this world, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Christians think differently than non-Christians. We don't just have different conclusions. We have completely different paradigm through which we interpret all data. That's called a worldview. So let me, this will be a little complicated, but it's important. Under all of the conflicts, there is truly, ultimately, one conflict. And it's at the level of ideology, perspective, or worldview. The culture in which we live believes in something called monism, M-O-N-I-S-M, monism. Monism does not like distinctions, differentiations of any sort or kind. God and Satan don't like that. Angels and demons, men and women, heaven and hell, right and wrong, truth and lies, doesn't like any of that. Doesn't like any of those distinctions. That's unloving, that's intolerant. Sound familiar? Works itself out in politics and spirituality and social issues. Dualism, D-U-A-L-I-S-M, I feel like I'm back in the spelling bee as a kid. Dualism, dual means two. Differentiations, distinctions. The God of the Bible thinks in categories. Right and wrong. Truth and lies. Light and darkness. Heaven and hell. Angels and demons. God and Satan. We could do this for a while. All of this exploded culturally. This is not a political statement, but it's an observation. Not long ago, there was a retailer that decided we were not going to have two bathrooms, but just whatever works for you. And it got a little controversial. I don't know if you remember that. If you've ever seen a cat hit with a hose, it was like that. (laughs) Because for a long time, there was dualism. You go into this bathroom or that bathroom. And then they decided, nope, whatever works for you. We don't have any distinctions. Those who had a monistic worldview, a singular ideology, said, well, that makes perfect sense. Those who had a dualistic worldview, especially the mothers, what? That's crazy. In that simple moment, there was the collision of two worldviews at the door handle of a bathroom. And it was taking what is very complicated ideology down to that which is practicality. Our president at the time, not a political statement, but I'll never forget he said something and I couldn't believe that it didn't get any real interest. He welcomed Americans to eradicate what he called binary thinking, to join him in rejecting binary thinking. Do you know what binary thinking is? Dualism. What he was asking Americans to do was to not think like God. This is not just an issue. This is the issue under all the issues. The God of the Bible is binary. He's dualistic. Light, dark, truth, lies, heaven, hell, God, Satan, angels, demons. There's no, that's why we don't believe in spirituality. We believe in the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't believe in all religions. We believe in Jesus. It's, it's binary. It's dualistic. Some of you are young. I could say that now that I'm old. Some of you are millennials, or as I like to call them, my children. Okay? <laughs> you were absolutely raised in a paradigm and an ideology of monism, not of dualism. When you come to the Bible, you'll need to reorient your thinking. You'll need to start to think biblically and categorically. Why do I say that? Because right here, life and death, light and darkness. What are those? Binary categories. Binary categories. John is saying there is life and death. There is light and darkness, life and death. Jesus is a matter of life and death. That's what he's saying. Jesus is a matter of life and death. There is no bigger issue than that. This is a matter of life and death. Life and death, not just death, eternal death and eternal life. 
I do not understand. I cannot comprehend a world where everyone is like, let's just all get together and eradicate suffering. I agree. Let's not overlook the worst suffering, the eternal suffering. Jesus is a matter of life and death. Without Jesus, you die and you experience eternal death. That's what he's saying. That Jesus alone is the source of life. And that apart from Jesus, there is no life. Now again, we live in a culture that denies these categories. Isaiah anticipated and prophesied it in 520. He said, woe to those who call evil good, good evil and light darkness and darkness light. That's the world in which we live. Jesus is a matter of life and death. Jesus is a matter of light and darkness. What he's saying is this, this world is dark. It is a dark place spiritually. It is a dark place politically. It is a dark place relationally. It's dark. Where does the light come from? The common prevailing myth is that light is in you. And that your light will fix the world. It's ridiculous and adorable. Okay? There's a, there's a movie coming out, uh, A Wrinkle in Time. It's based on a popular book. We're watching the previews. And the storyline is, the world is filled with darkness and darkness is encroaching and winning. But there are some children who discover the light within them and that light will conquer and save the world. Darkness is in us. Religion is darkness. Spirituality is darkness. Morality is darkness. Politics is darkness. We know this now. Everybody's angry. The average American now has an emotional spectrum of asleep and angry. Because it's just all darkness. The light doesn't come from here. The light comes to here. The light doesn't come from within you. It comes from within Jesus. That's what he's saying. What does light do? It does a couple of things. First, it it exposes that which is hidden. That's why in the middle of the night, if you hear something, the first thing you do is flip on the light. What's, What's here? It needs to be seen. Jesus exposes the human heart and condition. Light also brings life. That's why if you want to plant a garden, you put it outside under the sunlight and the light brings life. That's Jesus. Jesus exposes our darkness. He brings life. And light also illuminates our path, shows us where to go. Uh, My son just turned 16 and got his driver's license. And recently we were out on a drive and he said, Dad, I need to learn how to drive at night. So, okay, I jump in the passenger seat. Okay, so we back of the driveway. We're going down the street. I said, "Did, did you forget something, buddy? He's like, what? Turn on the, the lights. They're there for a reason. You need them. Right? It illuminates your path so you can continue in your journey. What does Jesus do? He exposes. He brings life. And he illuminates the path forward. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is a matter of life and death. Jesus is a matter of light and darkness. Let me say this. If you're here... You need to decide whether or not Jesus is light or darkness. The first thing that God said in the Bible was, let there be light. Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world. The Bible says in Revelation, when the kingdom of God is unveiled, there will be no sun because the presence of Jesus will illuminate all of creation for all of eternity. He is light. The Bible says he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The Bible says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Is there anything in your life, and and this is a moment, I didn't intend to say any of that. I believe this is a moment that the Holy Spirit is now giving us based upon God's word to ask you, my dear friends, who I truly love, Is there anything in your life that's in the darkness? 
It's secret. It's shameful. It's hidden. It's rebellious. It's death. This is God creating a divine appointment with you to bring it in the light. Say, okay, Jesus, you know who I am and where I'm at and what I'm doing. This is darkness, and I need you to expose it. I need you to bring life where there's death, and I need you to illuminate for me a path forward so that I can walk away from it. For some of you, that's why you're here today. Jesus wants you to know that. He's not angry with you. He's not trying to punish you. He already knows what you're hiding, and he wants you to bring it into the light so he can forgive it and heal it. Father God, I pray for a sacred moment right now for our people. Lord, anything that's in darkness brings death, not life. Anything that's in darkness separates us from you and it doesn't draw us closer to you. Lord God, I pray for these dear people that you love and I I really appreciate. And Lord, I just take this as a sacred moment. I, I didn't plan this, but Holy Spirit, maybe you did. Let there be light in the darkness. Let Jesus be the light of their world. Let them walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with him. Because Lord Jesus, in you, there is light and no darkness at all. Holy Spirit, please bring to mind anything that my dear people, your dear people, these dear people are believing or ways that they're behaving that would be in the darkness. May they bring it into the light right now. Might it be exposed? Might life come where there was death? Might you allow them to walk forward with you in newness of life with the sunlight of your grace shining on their face as they enjoy a new life in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that the end of the sermon, Pastor Mark? No, no, no. Okay, next one. Uh, Jesus is our Savior, God. John 1. 11 through 13, he came to his own, the Hebrew people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, what he's saying is this, the storyline of the Bible, I want to use this imagery of children of God and the will of the flesh and the will of the Father. I want to take and show you the storyline of the Bible. God is like a father and his heart is like a father's heart and he loves us and he creates a world as a home for us to dwell in his presence, to be blessed and to have relationship with him. And what we do is like foolish kids, we literally run away from our father and we run away from his home. That's what sin is. It's rejection. It's rebellion. Sin makes no sense. Sin is utter foolishness. And and we literally run away from God. Now imagine to extend the analogy There's a father who has children that he loves and the children are rebellious and they're foolish and they run away from home and nightfall comes and it's total darkness and they're lost and they can't find their way home. So the father sends out the oldest son, the responsible one and says, I'm sending you on a mission. Go find your siblings and bring them home. That's the storyline of the Bible, that the Father sends the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is our big brother. He comes into human history, and he is the light of the world. It's like he's the rescue mission. It's like somebody's out completely, utterly lost, and here is the search and rescue crew with the flashlight seeking them, calling out to them, Tony, Sally, Katie, Jack, come back home. Are you here? We're looking for you. And what he says is amazingly, some people see the light, they hear the call and they run. They run from Jesus. They run toward the darkness. They run toward the the death. If you're not a Christian, that's you. It's you. It's you. You've you've run from the God who came to save you. Some people don't think that they need to be saved. Some people like being lost. Some people figure they'll find their own way out of the woods, all of which is untrue. There are two categories, those who reject and those who receive Jesus. Again, binary categories. His own people did not receive him. Here's what I'm asking you today. If you're not a Christian, I want this to be the day that you would receive Jesus. 
God came to earth looking for you. You would run from a God who came to earth looking for you. That's where sin is foolishness. It's madness. It's self-destruction. It's suicidal to live your life apart from your creator, apart from your father, apart from your maker, apart from the one who knows you and loves you. There is another category. Those who didn't reject him, but they, they receive him. Oh, Jesus is here. Oh, finally, man, I was lost. Not, thank you for coming. I for sure needed it. That's where it takes a bit of humility to acknowledge and accept the fact that we need to be saved and we're not the savior. Okay? Who believed in his name, I'm asking you today to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God. What he's saying is this, Jesus, your big brother comes to rescue you. He brings the light into the darkness. He pulls you out of the woods and he brings you home to the father. And you now get God as your father. Jesus is your big brother and the church is your family. And you get to be a child of God. That is amazing. Do you know that the whole world lives with an orphan heart? Angry, bitter, broken relationships, family hurt and pain. Jesus is the big brother who reconciles us to the father. That's what he's saying. The children of God. Do you know how I feel about my kids? I love my kids. The father loves you more than I love my kids. The father doesn't just love you more than you think. The father loves you more than you can think. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus, your big brother, to come and get you and bring you back home. For some of you, you've been running a long time and you think, man, I am far from God. I have good news for you. You were running and so was Jesus. So if you just turn around, he's right there. Okay, he's right there. Next one, Jesus is our human God. Oh, this one's amazing. This is one of the best verses in the whole Bible. This is amazing. You're gonna like it. You're gonna like it. If not, I got nothing else for you. This is all I got, okay? This verse is amazing. John 1, 14 to 15, and the word became flesh. What? What? And dwelt among us, hung out with us. And we have seen his glory, glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, his cousin, bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What he's talking about is how do we enter into God's presence? How do we live in relationship with God? How do we, how do we, how do we dwell with God? How do we live with God? How do we relate to God? In the Old Testament, they had something called the tabernacle. It was like a tent. God's people were on the move and it would go with them. God doesn't need a home. God's people need a home. So God's presence would dwell in the tabernacle and God's people would gather there in God's presence and he would dwell with them. Later on, they built a magnificent temple. That's where God's presence dwelt with God's people. The center of their life, the center of their family, the center of their history was the presence of God. Let me tell you this. Your life needs a center around which it orbits. If your marriage, if your children, if your job, if your career, if your beauty, if your status, if your income level, if your zip code is the gravitational center of your universe and everything revolves around it, you are destined toward destruction. That ultimately the center needs to be the presence of God and it needs to invade and transform your relationships and your vocation, your spirituality and all of your life, all that you have, all that you are. That for them, the center of all things was the presence of God. All of that was to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. That in Jesus, God enters into human history. The eternal God enters into time and space. The creator God enters into his creation. The spiritual God comes in flesh. That word in the original Greek, carne, carne. So theologians will use this language of incarnation. That means in carne. What's carne? Okay, how many of you like Mexican food and Jesus? Okay, raise both hands. (laughs) Whoop, whoop, me too. Oh man. I love Jesus and carne asada, amen. I do, if I go to heaven and I get to eat carne asada with Jesus, what a good day that'll be for me, woo, can't wait. Okay, 
What does carne mean? And the carne, let's just take a moment and think about Mexican food. It's almost lunchtime. I love carne asada. I really do. It's, I, 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 I love Jesus and carne asada. And just, you know, here at the Trinity Church, the answer to most questions and problems is Jesus or Mexican food. It is, it is one of those two answers that usually resolves whatever your issue might be. Um, I was thinking about something and I thought about carne asada. Now I can't think about anything else. <laughs> Love it. Carne asada. Carne means what? Meat. Flesh. Meat. So every time you eat carne asada, think of the incarnation. And worship Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Because God came in meat. So you're like, I'm a vegetarian. You won't be in heaven. It's going to have the <laughs> choicest of wines, the finest of meats. I'm not even making it up. It says it in Isaiah. In the Hebrew, it's carne asada. (laughs) We still love you. More meat for us. But carne asada is meat. Jesus is God in carne, flesh. Flesh. So God's walk. Now, this is the opposite of religion. Religion says that people ascend up to God. Here, it's that God descends down to us. Jesus, humanity, is made possible because of his humility. Shows you that the God of the Bible is humble. Now, Jesus is the center of everything. We don't go to a holy place like a temple or a mosque or a synagogue or a sacred place or a red rock to sit in the lotus position. We don't go to a holy place. We go to a holy person. His name is Jesus and he's willing to meet with you wherever you might be and through the Holy Spirit to bring God's presence to dwell with you. This is extraordinary that we don't have a place as our center. We have a person as our center. He is relational and he wants a relationship with you. And then John goes on to just in great rapid fire succession, it's almost like the 4th of July. Boom, 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 boom. One thing after another about Jesus. It says that he is glory. That means he's weighty, he's preeminent, he's prominent. There's no one that weighs more heavily in our hearts and minds and and lives than Jesus. That he is the only son, that he has such a loving relationship with God the Father, that it's like a father-son intimate affection. Not only is he the son of God, he is the only son of God. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one alongside of Jesus. There is no one comparable to Jesus. There is no one who will ever walk the earth that in any remote way is anything like the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of Jesus. He is not just the son of God. He is the only son of God. That's exactly what John says. And it says that he comes filled with grace and truth. The truth is that we are sinners and the grace is that he comes as the hero. He comes as the savior. He comes as the rescuer to save, to seek you and me. He's full of truth. The truth is we need him. The grace is that he's there for us and that he is before all things. Jesus is not only bigger than you think, Jesus is bigger than you can think. You will spend the rest of your life and into eternity learning about him, being absolutely astonished by him, being absolutely satisfied by him and being absolutely grateful for him. And then we read this. Jesus is our only God. Pastor Mark, what about other gods? There aren't any. That's all darkness. John 1, 16 through 18. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. First thing he says is Jesus is the only God. Let me, let me just say this, my dear friends, you got to figure out what you're going to do with that. He says, Jesus is quote, the only God. He's made it really clear, but overtly clear twice, right at the beginning of the book. Is Jesus your only God? Is he your only God? 
That's exactly what it's saying. It couldn't be any clearer. Jesus Christ is the only God. Not just a God, the only God. Not just our preferred God, the only God. Not just one among many gods, the only God. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. And you need to know, he's a devout Jewish Hebrew guy who knows if you worship anyone or anything than the real God of the Bible, it's blasphemy and you're sentenced to the eternal torment and conscious painful suffering of the fiery flames of hell. So this is not a minor statement. This is him literally trusting his eternity and everyone who follows him as the most significant, preeminent, and authoritative spiritual leader alive on the earth. He is betting everyone's soul on one issue. Jesus is the only God. That's the issue. All of human history divides down one line. Jesus is the only God. That's what we believe. Jesus is not the only God. That's what they believe. That is the demarcation in all human history. These are binary categories. This is dualism. This is darkness and light. This is lies and truth. This is hell and heaven. This is everyone else and Jesus. That's exactly what we're talking about. You need to decide what you think about Jesus. Jesus asked this pregnant question. Who do you say that I am? How you answer that question is the most important thing about you. It's the most defining thing about you. Jesus is our only God. And what he says is, most people try to relate to God through something called law talks about the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. That means the book in five parts. Some will call it the book of the law. There's 613 laws, a lot of laws. The laws were God's decrees on how God's people were to behave. At any point we don't obey the law, we sin. First John says that sin is the breaking of God's law. That's what it is. Most religions teach the way that you become acceptable in God's sight is by obeying God's law. That if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're acceptable in God's sight. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that there's good people and bad people. He says there's perfect people and sinful people. As a result, as you read God's law, the first thing you realize is that you fall short of God's law. Love God with all my heart. Um, Whoops. Tithe 10%? Oh, for sure. I'm not good at math. doesn't count, right? Um, Don't commit adultery. Oh, whoops. Uh, In your heart. Oh. Don't lust after people. Don't want things that don't belong to you. Don't lie. How many of you have read the Bible and realized, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm in real trouble. Now we're into a judicial courtroom scene. And the laws are open. And if we're guilty at one point, then we are, that's like some of you, you say, well, I only did one bad thing. Well, that's what criminals go to jail for, right? How many bad things you got to do to go to jail? You can't stand before the judge. I killed him, but I didn't jaywalk. So, you know, nobody's perfect. I only did one thing, right? That if we sin against God, we're guilty. And even one sin condemns us to the conscious eternal torments of hell. So the law comes and the law is good and we're bad. And the truth is that we fall short of the law and that grace comes through Jesus Christ. Here's where I have good news for you. I'm not going to tell you what to do until I tell you what Jesus has done. Jesus is God, lived a sinless, perfect life. He lived the life that you should have lived, that I should have lived, that we should have lived, and we did not live. And we opposed him. We hated him. We despised him. We rejected him. We beat him. We murdered him. We, we crucified him. And in that moment, he substituted himself for us. That's grace. And it was his death for our life, his condemnation for our salvation, his rejection for our acceptance. It's called a great exchange. Jesus took your place. And he gives to you all of his righteousness. He gives to you all of his forgiveness. He gives to you love, joy, peace, an eternal relationship that is secure. 
that God wouldn't punish you if you belong to Jesus because he already punished Jesus, that God is not looking for you to pay him back if you belong to Jesus because your account has been paid in full by Jesus. We call this good news. Guilty people who deserve hell that get Jesus would say that's very good news. And that's grace. It's not firstly about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. And faith is trusting in what Jesus has done for you. Three days later, Jesus rose from death. He conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. And some of you come here today and you would ask, how do I get to know God? It's hard to have a relationship with someone that you cannot see. That's why on our social media profiles, we put our photo. When we want to talk to somebody, we meet with them or we Skype or FaceTime with them. God the Father is immaterial. He's spiritual. He's invisible. How do you have a relationship with someone you can't see? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus comes as the picture of the Father. If you see Jesus, Jesus says it this way. If you've seen me, you've seen the, the Father. Jesus is how we see God. The only way to see God is to look at Jesus, to see Jesus, to savor Jesus, to know Jesus. Let me end with my final point. Jesus is our relational God. What we have studied thus far is what has been said. Let me briefly explain who has said it. John is the author. He was possibly a cousin or relative of Jesus. He worked in his dad's business with his brother. They were a successful fishing family. They had employees and boats and nets and all of that. And one day Jesus walks by and he calls out, come, follow me. And it says immediately, John and his brother left everything and they followed Jesus. They left their business. They left their inheritance. They left their family company. They left all of their supplies. They left everything to follow Jesus. Sometimes following Jesus costs you a lot. And for three years, they studied with Jesus and they followed Jesus and they learned from Jesus. John says in the opening line of 1 John, in that opening paragraph, he says, what I'm telling you about Jesus, I've seen with my own eyes, I've heard with my own ears, and this is the Jesus that I have embraced with my own hands. John was there when Jesus healed. John was there when Jesus walked on water, when he preached, when he taught, when he cast out demons, when he performed miracles. John was there for all of it. And he was a force of personality. At first, he was arrogant. He asked if he could sit at the right hand of Jesus forever, be worshiped along with Jesus in glory, which is a high self-esteem. He also was a little bit impetuous and angry. He asked Jesus if they could destroy a whole town of people by calling down fire from heaven. Like you and me, he needed some work. But he did love Jesus and he gives us hope because as he walked with Jesus, he changed. Thomas, one of the disciples, doubted Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. John stayed steadfast. He was one of the inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were there at the most significant and private moments of Jesus' life and ministry. Everything I need to know about John, I learn at the cross of Jesus. As Jesus is crucified, dying in our place for our sins, he looks down, there is his mother Mary, and there is his best friend John. It says multiple times in John's gospel that he is the one whom Jesus loved. This is Jesus' nearest and dearest best friend. And he looks at John and he says, take care of my mom. Jesus had brothers and sisters and he did not assign this task to them. Your greatest friend is the person that on your deathbed you send to care for your mom. Amen? Nobody you love more than mom. And Jesus sends John to take care of his mother, Mary. That tells me everything I need to know about John and his relationship with Jesus. John was the first at the empty tomb of Jesus. John was the first to recognize Jesus risen from death. John was there when Jesus preached and taught for 40 days. John was there when his friend Jesus ascended into heaven. John saw all of the other disciples and apostles murdered. He went to their funerals. He was the last living disciple alive. And he sees Jesus as glorious and creator and savior and eternal God come in human flesh, ruling and reigning over all languages and times and nations and peoples and tribes and tongues and loved him as his best friend. 
Some of you love Jesus as your best friend this year. You're going to get to know him as your Lord. That's going to be amazing. And some of you know Jesus as your Lord and he wants to spend some time with you as he did John. And he wants to be your nearest and dearest friend because he loves you too. This is going to be a great year for you. You're going to read John's gospel and you're going to meet John's Jesus. And so John starts with Jesus. The only way that we understand God is to start with Jesus. So here at the Trinity Church this year, we're starting with Jesus, amen? Amen. We're opening God's word. We're starting with Jesus. We meet on Sunday because it's the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's the first day of the week because we want to start our week with Jesus. And what we're going to do right now, we're going to throw a little Jesus party, okay? This world is darkness. Jesus is light. So we're here to have a party in the presence of God. We call it worship. I'm going to invite the band forward. You guys are the band too. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing and celebrate because Jesus is alive. Jesus is God. Jesus is good. Jesus is creator. Jesus is redeemer. Jesus is savior. Jesus hears our prayers. Jesus knows our year. Jesus has a hope and a future for us. Jesus has an eternity plan with us. And it's all really good news. Amen. And so we're going to get together as God's people in God's presence. And we're going to sing God's praises. We're gonna take communion remembering that our God came in human flesh, broken body, shed blood in our place for our sins. And lastly, as you come forward for communion, I want you to be hearing what John heard. Come, follow me. That's Jesus' invitation to all of us. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. And if you're a Christian or become a Christian today, first step as you're walking forward, you're walking with God's people and you're saying, starting today, I'm walking with Jesus. All right, you stand, I'll pray, we'll sing. All right, stand on up. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the Bible is living and active. Thank you that it changes us, it reads us, it transforms us. Holy Spirit, I invite your presence to be among your people as we sing the praises of Jesus. Lord God, we have a reason to sing. We have a reason to hope. We have a reason to celebrate. And it is all about Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.